Welcome. You're listening to Book Blab on the Pony Pod. Here, we talk with bookworms about their latest page turners and why you should read them too. Today, I'm joined by Audrey McClure, the DC's editor in chief. Um, Audrey, why don't you introduce yourself to the people? Introduce myself. Okay. Um, I'm Audrey. <laughs> I'm a senior. I'm studying international studies and world languages. Journalism is my minor and my passion. And um, I'm just excited to be here today with you, Simone. Thank you so much. Um, I won't lie. I asked you to introduce yourself because I didn't want to get your majors wrong. <laughs> I did not write down her majors. Um, but I know, I know she's going to law school, which is what's important. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so today we're talking about Pearl S. Buck's The Good Earth. This is a very iconic book, um, and it was very momentous as a historical piece of fiction, too. Um, and so I'm going to go ahead and ask you to summarize The Good Earth for us. Okay. Um, I guess the best way to describe it, as Simone has heard me say many times at this point, so it sounds very unoriginal, is it's essentially like a East of Eden, but set in China. And it follows the story of this farmer called Wang Lung, and it kind of just tracks his rise from like this like poor farmer who only lives with his father to this like very prosperous landlord, merchant farmer who just has achieved everything and more that he could possibly hope for in life. And um, as you're kind of following Wang Lung, you're also following his family and his changing perspectives as this guy who came from very humble beginnings to a very like prosperous and comfortable place in his life. And I think it's a really great book that sounds a lot better than that plot that I just gave. No, there's a reason why it's required reading for so many high schools. Um, I also read this in high school and uh, The Good Earth was written by Pearl S. Buck, who is an American author mm -hmm. in the sense that she was born on American soil and her parents were missionaries actually. Um, and they immigrated to China, and Pearl S. Buck received a very formal Chinese education um, until she was 17 years old. And then she went to Cornell, came back to America, and then eventually went back to China. So a lot of her experience in writing The Good Earth is influenced by the time that she spent growing up in China. Um, and it was written, published in 1931, and the actual story is set around the early 1900s. We're kind of like set to assume that turn of the century. Um, what I think is so interesting about The Good Earth, actually, is its significance that it played on American culture. So I kind of wanted to ask you why you think The Good Earth is so captivating and was so captivating, especially for its time uh, for Western audiences. Well, I think... At that time, probably what made it so especially captivating was China. Well, I mean, the Orient, or whatever people wanted to call it back then, was so mysterious and so strange and foreign, and people didn't know too much about China, which, I mean, is kind of the same today. Like, there's a lot of things that we just don't really quite understand about the greater region of Asia that makes it seem, like, so foreign and exotic. And I think that the way that Pearl S. Buck wrote The Good Earth was it felt very human, um, and one of the th reasons that I, or at least I probably really like it is because I feel like it, it cuts through a lot of like this, like mysticism and like exoticism of like Asia and the Orient to make something that feels very real and very personal. And like the characters, like, even though 
none of them i would say are like especially like well you get it you get a lot of each character and i think that's what makes it stand out is that you don't feel at any point that this is like an especially like cultured book i mean there's a lot of detail and there's a lot of like references to culture but it feels very human and i think being able to like see past like cultural differences and language differences is something that pearl's book just does really well in the book because you just feel like you understand these characters on a very like personal and like deep level up until that point um in the early 1900 or early 1930s there the depiction of chinese culture and oriental culture was for the most part reduced to stereotypes um, or if they weren't stereotypes it wasn't necessarily captivating or compelling enough for western audiences to really grapple with mm -hmm. and i think what is so interesting to me is how important when she published this book was and she published it right after the great depression right in the midst of where all these people were experiencing like immense poverty and I think the sympathetic portrayal of Olan and Wang Lung um, is what really gra like really grabbed people at the time. Um, yeah. So, what do you think of the Good Earth in relation to the time in which it was published, right around the Great Depression? I mean, like, how many famines are in that book? Like, <laughs> so, many famines, so many famines. I mean, I guess I imagine if you're an American during the Great Depression, you're likely unemployed. You're likely not doing very well, and seeing kind of a parallel depiction of people who are far off lands um but Wong Lung is essentially like a Joe Schmo you know he's doing his best he has his family he's just trying to survive and there's all these other characters especially like the depictions of like greed and like the difference in class and like prosperity is so stark it would be hard not to have something like that speak to you I think as an American at that point no matter what race you were Audrey and I went to this journalism conference recently, recently in Austin, and there were a lot of international journalists there who were discussing how a lot of times Americans or American news doesn't care about foreign countries that are losing press democracy unless it directly relates to them. And I think that even though this book is very centered on China and Chinese values of like filial piety and um, working the land, uh, there's this sense of American exceptionalism that we are the special person who will make it. And I think that was something that was so important for people to believe coming out of this immense poverty. Um, and it also speaks to this kind of populist sentiment. <laughs> I'm thinking like um, we're working as farmers, you know, very Andrew Jackson. Um, and I kind of wanted to know what your thoughts were comparing like uh, these American traditions versus these Chinese traditions. Well, I don't, this is, okay, this might sound a little unrelated to how I'm going about this, but, and also this is going to make me sound way more educated than I am because I literally took like one into a Chinese class. So that's the way that I know that Wang Lung's last name Wang just means like king, but it's also like one of the most like common Chinese names, like probably in like the world since there's so many like people in China. Um, but like, I think that idea, like that idea that you just said about like this every man, but this like exceptionalism about it is really like well embodied in that character because like he's just this guy, you know, one day he gets married and he doesn't, he doesn't expect a especially pretty or smart wife. He just has a wife. But um, that like recurring theme of just like hard work and like faith and going after like what you think is like 
the right way to do things. And this also re- repetition of how Wang Lung is like at his heart a good man. Like, I think that's the kind of character that a lot of people, one, want to identify with. They want to see themselves as like, you know, maybe I'm nothing like too special, but at my heart, I'm a good, hardworking person. I'm going to succeed and do amazing things. Um, but also, I think there's still like a lot of optimism within being like American at that time. Like, you know, we're not doing great, but at least I'm in the land of opportunity. At least I'm in America where I can do whatever I want as long as like I work for it and I can like, you know, try my best. And I think having a character like that set in a foreign country, just kind of, it feels like you're tying yourself closer together um, to something. I think it's interesting too, because I feel, I, I don't know how you feel about this, but like, I mean, I'm half Chinese. And so I think a part of the reason why like I was so attracted to that book was because just seeing depictions of people who you feel you can identify with on some level, whether it be like historical or like your identity is like very captivating to people. And I think that I'm sure a lot of people who read The Good Earth in the 1930s were not half Asian girls, but I'm sure that like there was that sense of like affinity with the character and even with like the land, the way she describes like the land and how attached he is to his home, I think just resonates really strong with people and you root for that character too. You really want him to succeed. And when you see his failings, you are a lot more sympathetic to him just because you feel attached to him in some way. That's not just, I think that we're similar people, you know? Yeah, I actually think that emotion of attachment uh, or the sense of attachment is so prevalent among every single character because I kind of hate Wang Lung, but I'm attached to him. I kind of hate like the way he treats Olan, who is his wife. Essentially, he um, to say that he marries Olan at the beginning of the novel is kind of a stretch. Olan is a slave in a neighboring house, which is a great house, the House of Huang, and he takes her for a wife. Um, and then she becomes this kind of the best character throughout the novel, but receives very cruel treatment and a lot of it is born from this fact that she started as a slave. So any progression from there seems like, um, oh, you know, be grateful for what you have. You started here. And she treats herself with this kind of sense, um, although she does grow to have more self-respect whenever Wang Lung brings in his second wife. That's another thing. He brings in a second wife, which kind of we hate him for that. But we also understand Wang Lung. Um, and that, again, I think speaks to Pearl S. Buck's ability to make us so attached and affected to these characters, even though they make very questionable decisions. Yeah, and I think that point about, like, Olan just being, like, the most likable character is so interesting, too, because, like, on the surface level, she's arguably one of, like, the least interesting characters. Like, they describe her as plain and, like, not very, like, talkative. You don't, or at least according to Wang Lung, he, like, never quite knows, like, what she's thinking. But I think that her character is like so captivating because you get these little bursts of like who she is and even if it's not who she is it's like who she could be like that what is that like monologue where he like talks to her about like their future son and she goes into detail about how she's going to walk into the court and she's going to carry her son he's going to be fat and like healthy and he's going to be wearing this like all red ensemble and everyone is going to like wish that they were her like who who has not like felt that sense of like just I want to get back at these people who didn't like see what I was or what I could be um and like that comparison with her 
that little burst of character compared to the most of the novel <laughs> where she's just kind of doing what Wang Lung says and just kind of giving all of herself to help him, I think is so like it's just such like a like a tragic but like such like a rich character that you just wish you knew more about her. I think one of the major tragedies, one quote, um, right whenever, spoiler alert, Olan dies tragedy, <laughs> tragically at the end, um, that describes their relationship really well, I think was he wished he had not taken two pearls from Olan that day when she was washing his clothes by the pool. Oh, the pearls. <laughs> Yeah, so essentially um, something that makes them so, they go from, you know, uh, prospering a little bit to uh, extreme poverty whenever they experience a, a very bad drought. And then they, you know, slowly come back up to this extreme exorbitant amount of decadence and wealth. But a lot of that is because Olan steals these jewels during their extreme poverty. And eventually Wang Lung sells all the jewels to get more land, which helps them prosper, but he lets her keep these two pearls. And whenever he brings in his first concubine, his second wife, uh, he gives those pearls to Lotus Flower, which is her name. And she makes them into earrings, and Olan is just devastated because those were the only things that she wanted to hold on to. And this, like, regret of Wang Lung, as, as we see him, you know, we're like, happy that he recognizes that no you shouldn't have you shouldn't have given her those pearls those were olan's um but it's it's just a really emotional moment in yeah. the novel i think that the thing about olan too that probably speaks very strongly to like women and i, I don't know what pearl s buck was thinking when she wrote about olan but like this like concept of like beauty is like a power i think is like like as I feel weird saying things like as a woman, but like as a woman, like I feel like that hold that like your physical appearance has on like how other people treat you and how you're afraid that it makes people perceive you is like so like beautifully like put on Olan because like you're constantly told like how she's like nothing, nothing special. But like there's obviously like this like very like deep beauty within like how like selfless and giving she is. And like when she asks to keep those two pearls having barely spoken throughout the novel, asks for, like, these two things to keep near her at all times. It's, like, such, like, this beautiful thing when Wang Lung agrees to let her keep it. And then when he takes them from her, it's just, like, it's so sad, not because, not just because, like, they were, like, the two things she just wants, but also because he's giving it to this other woman that he values primarily above all else for her beauty. And... Like, for him to be, like, blinded by that, to ignore everything else that, like, Olan has done for him and given to him is, like, I would think one of, like, <laughs> one of your, like, worst fears to just, like, have everything that you could, like, to have, like, your worth just destroyed for something that is so, like, ephemeral and so, you know, impermanent is so, like, tragic to read about. Yeah, and I think in the sense of foot binding whenever mm -hmm. we discuss Olan and beauty and worth because considering all that Olan does um, as a farmhand, as someone who is begging for money in the middle of the novel, as someone who is rearing six children, five children, but you know, six children, there's no way she could have done that with bound feet. I think about that. And 
um, Wang Lung is upset at the beginning of the novel that she doesn't have her feet bound, but would he have been able to survive the drought, the famines, if Olan had bound feet? He wouldn't have the same kind of woman and he wouldn't have the same kind of help. And definitely, I think it's safe to say, without her physical capabilities, and he describes her as having big feet too. Mm-hmm. Without her big feet, he would not have been able to, <laughs> to really survive um, or achieve the amount of wealth that he does throughout the novel. Yeah. And that's the thing, even though it's really her big feet that are carrying, it's carrying everything, he's the one who gets credit for everything and she dies of a liver disease. Yeah. And I think too, like, it's so, not funny, but like, Olan, like, in so many instances, like, deals with like, the ugliness of what happens in their lives. So that Wong Lung can like, have and like, appreciate this, all this beauty, like, when she another spoiler alert sorry um but when this she book has like, been out for <laughs> almost 100 years <laughs> that's true actually not a spoiler alert you should have read it by now <laughs> but like when she kills that was it their second daughter mm-hmm. when she kills the second daughters that he doesn't have to you know feed another mouth also when their son steals meat in the south and she wong lung kind of he he doesn't necessarily have the luxury of saying no but he says no i don't want it but then olan just takes it and cooks it because she knows that they have a family they need to eat and this is meat and it's not going to go to waste yeah it's a big sophie's choice moment and i think that olan as opposed to wang lung doesn't live in delusion at all mm-hmm. i think Wang Lung has this need to be constantly satisfied and need and, and that does help. I'm sure ambition is something that brings them to prosperity, but it's Olan that grounds them, that gives them the ability to physically manifest these things. If they were surviving off of idealism and it's no, we can't steal because that's morally wrong. You know, you don't steal in that instance, then you starve. Um, or if you don't steal I guess part of the message here is if you don't steal from the rich, (laughs) you won't get rich as well, which Mm -hmm. is kind of what happens um, in the sense of Olan is the one who takes those jewels and Wang Lung steals that money from the man in the south as well to bring them, bring their family back onto the farm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just like she sees injustice so plainly, like she has no illusions about life for people and i think there was another moment in the book where she was talking about they were talking when it was they were in the south and they were like starving and she was talking wang lung was thinking about selling off their second daughter who you know was just like an infant at that time or like a toddler and he was like she's like pretty enough maybe she can go to like a court and she can have like a good life in the court and he's asking all these questions of olan of like oh what's it like for a girl in like a great house and what's it like for them and just calmly, every single question, she's like, it's terrible. If they're good looking, then men will basically rape them as children. And this is before they're even like grown up. And if she's ugly, then, you know, they'll just beat her and they'll be terrible to her. And she just says that so flatly and so easily. And Wang Long, meanwhile, is having this like crisis because he had no idea about this side of life. But Olan, meanwhile, you know, knew. So I do want to talk about their kids more because, in a sense, we get this indication toward the end of the novel that the sons are going to be the undoing of the family and the undoing of the land. What do you think about the relationship between Wang Lung, Olan, and their sons or daughters, children? Um, I guess 
the way I read it, which isn't a very like subtle reading, is it's just like a literal like mix of their characteristics, which is pretty common in like these generational novels like this. But I again like it kind of seems like almost like a Goldilocks, like too hot, too cold, just right kind of thing, where the first son is kind of all of Wong Lung, just intensified. He's like super into like decadence and like just living life and all its like, you know, guttural pleasures. Um, then he's like tall and handsome. And then the second son is, you know, like very, he's like almost too much Olan, like he's just too cold, like too calculating. And then the third son, which if you read the next book, you kind of see more of it. But the third son, there's this indication of like he's a very like temperate mix of the two. I think that was an interesting decision to go so much into like Wang Lung and then have this like dread of like his like future generations like throughout the novel, which is I think it adds this other like layer of depth to the story too, because like ostensibly the story is a good one. Like he goes from poor to rich, but then like within like that like ascendancy he's like there's just this like just constant like tragedy like this constant like fear like you can never really feel comfortable in the prosperity that he's getting because you see like all these little details and all these little like possible undoings of like what could happen um and i think that's also why i mean the other the other character who is probably like one of my favorites is the the, the poor fool or like his daughter backstory for people listening she's born during the famine um and famine being famine there is nothing to eat and you know daughters at that time weren't especially valued so at first when she's born Wang Long is kind of like oh it's a daughter this is a sign of like bad things to come but as they like go through this like terrible tragedy of just poverty and abject hunger as a family he gets really attached to his daughter because as a baby she like smiles at him and she's like this like very like just little moment of like happiness like the only little bit of happiness that he has in in the whole you know years that they're they're doing like begging and just struggling and after she's grown up we realize that she probably because she had like literally nothing to eat as a child she just ends up being like you know, she's kind of, like, stunted, like, mentally. She doesn't know really how to talk. She doesn't, like, function like a normal, like, developed person. Um, and so what she does is she just kind of sits in the corner in, in, like, a sun, and she, like, plays a little, like, fold of, like, red cloth, and she's just, like, always happy. And he calls her his, like, poor fool. Um, but just, like, that character, obviously we don't really hear too much about, like, her own thoughts and, like, what she feels, but, like, her as a character is just like this like little moment of like solace i think for readers too because she's just so she's just this neutral like happy ground within like this like novel that's so can get like so complicated and like so like achingly sad sometimes um but yeah i thought i thought that was an interesting thing that buck did to kind of explore like all these different characteristics and amplify or diminish aspects of wang lung and olan through the kids I think the way that Burlesque Buck treats the sons is especially interesting because they become educated. Wang Lung is very insistent that his sons receive an education once he becomes a rich man. And ideally, this makes sense whenever someone 
who grew up poor gains money, it becomes their priority to give their children something of a better life than they had. And he says this quote where he says um, about his first son, but my son is not thus. He is more delicate than I was, and his father is rich, and mine was poor. And there is no need for his labor, for I have labor in my fields. And besides, one cannot take a scholar such as my son is and set him to the plow. And I think this creates a problem because the good earth is so focused on the good earth. It's about the earth. It's about the value of the land. And yet, by sending his sons off to get educated, they devalue the earth. So it almost kind of rings into the sentiment of oh, education is bad. You know, we need to focus on those who are um, more single-mindedly focused on farming, or which reminds me again of this like very populist sentiment <laughs> in America. Yeah, yeah, no, that that's that's a fair point. I think also it kind of rings in, it like brings in the element of the tragedy again, where like Wong Lung suffered as a poor man. So he's determined that his sons never suffer as poor men do, but in kind of shielding them from that aspect of life, he like ensures that they become the same people that are willing to let the poor suffer at their own hands, at their own like delicacy is what he would call it. But just like decadence is probably like the better word where they're just kind of greedy and unwilling to see the other, to see that what even their own father went through. I mean, that really is kind of this whole populist sentiment too, right? Where, oh, the rich are like out of touch. They don't get us. They've never struggled as we do. And it's not an entirely unfair point, I guess. Um, but clearly it's not, it's not productive because it doesn't go much further than venting these frustrations against people. And it doesn't really go beyond criticizing that someone has more than what they should. And it doesn't go into talking about like, what are like the structural like mechanisms that allow that to happen? Why is this happening? And so it's the, it creates the cycle that's almost like doomed to repeat itself in the way that Wang Lung's sons are doomed to repeat that same cycle. Do you think yeah. this is maybe just a metaphor or an analogy to the cultivation of like agriculture and the cycle of fortune and misfortune things need to die before they can grow again mm -hmm. is that what pearl s buck is trying to tell us that we need to accept this wheel of fortune and misfortune in order to continue growth maybe she is maybe she is because now that we're talking about it too i do remember a lot of parts in the book where she would reference like the mutterings of like the townspeople and how they were so upset but then she would very much she was very much making the point that like were they in the same position as the rich people they would do the exact same thing and i mean it's kind of sad but it does sound like that's like the point she's trying to make where it's just like people are selfish no matter how rich and how poor they are and the only thing that draws us apart is how able we are to capitalize on that like selfish instinct which i kind of hate like i don't I like to think that people aspire to better things. And I think that's why, like, a character... I would think that's why a character like Wong Lung was so, like, popular and meaningful because all of us try to see, like, ourselves as beyond just these, like, kind of, like, selfish impulses. I hate to, like, side with this, this thing of, like, oh, yeah, it's, like, an inevitable cycle. People suck. But, like, <laughs> it kind of, it kind of, it, like, it's true, but it's not true. But also I don't want to... Uh, disclosure, disclaimer, I'm, like, not, like, a libertarian who believes in, like, neoliberal economics to, like, the max, you know? But, like, talking about this, I'm, like, hearing myself, I'm like, oh, God, <laughs> here I am. <laughs> but, 
No, I mean, I, I think that's probably that's probably the stance that she's taking. I mean, she lived in like rural China. She saw how hard life could be. She saw like that class disparity. She lived through the Great Depression. I think it's a hard it's hard not to come out of that thinking that way, at least to a certain extent, I think. And it is important to know that this is not a completely accurate depiction of what rural China was like. <laughs> this is Pearl S. Buck's interpretation mm -hmm. of rural China. And it is important to note that while this was a groundbreaking book, it wasn't written by a Chinese author. It was written by a woman who had a very different experience to China than someone who was born in China and would have experienced farm life firsthand. Um, her parents were missionaries, so they came in, I'm assuming, so sue me for assuming this, with a very savior idea of what they were you know, going to do in China. Uh, but I do think the importance of this novel historically on how America looked at China after this is just crazy to me. The fact that I, I you know, it's, it's not widely contested that uh, <laughs> the good earth helped prepare the Americans of the 1930s to consider Chinese as allies for the coming war with Japan, which is when I read that, I was like, oh, my gosh, wow. Mm -hmm. Like this one book uh, written by this woman who ended up being the first woman to win the Nobel Prize in literature was a book that changed the global landscape of the beginning of World War II. And then they also, you know, uh, several people also say that this book also had a hand in the 1943 repeal of the Chinese Exclusion Act. 1943, by the way, that's that's when the Chinese Exclusion Act was repealed. That's not that far away. It's uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, that, I mean, like 1943 repealing Chinese Exclusion Act, like it just shows you like how easily people thought of, you know, foreigners as like inhuman in that time. And yeah, I mean, again, like that's kind of, I think that's like one of like the most powerful things about this book is like how human the characters feel and how like real they are. Um, and sorry, I'm still caught up on 1943. Right, <laughs> the right. Chinese Exclusion Act. Um, I mean, I know it's been a minute since American history in high school, but <laughs> I feel like that <laughs> that day would have stuck with me a little bit more. Yeah, I I mean, and I again like credit to her for like, you know, being able to like cut through these like, you know, images of you know, what China is and what what Chinese people are like. Um I think I remember reading somewhere that I think she wanted to go back. She like came back to the US. And then she spent like a lot of her life wanting to go back to China and just not being able to. I mean, I, I just think it'll be really interesting to think about like her identity as like an American growing up in China, spending a lot of her life in China. Um, and I mean, that's that experience, that perspective of like having both worlds and being an other and like kind of both both cultures. I'm sure like it, it comes through in her writing of how how clearly she's able to like toe that line, that like clarity of like just what's human and not necessarily like falling too far into like I, the trap of either, you know, exoticizing one side too much or just her clarity of writing with like the characters and the landscape I think comes through like her life experiences. This is also not to say that all depictions of Chinese people going forward were perfect. No. <laughs> if you remember, if you've ever watched, um, Thoroughly Modern Millie, uh, there is a very obvious stereotypical 
oriental character and characters who run a laundromat and they're the villains and it's <laughs> deeply upsetting whenever you go back and watch it but you know depictions of oriental characters or characters from the east from then on did not necessarily get better but I think there was a standard of what is more accurate than what had been before. Unfortunately, um, The Good Earth was turned into a movie and it was very successful, but Pearl S. Buck actually asked specifically uh, for there to be Chinese actors and they did not grant her request. <laughs> and that seems to be a battle that we're still fighting to see representation, accurate representation on the screen as well. Mm -hmm. I think too, like just that fact, of like the good earth being written being written well having you know success and for me it shows that there's like not really an excuse for like inaccurate well you know there's not an excuse to accept inaccurate representation and to just say that oh well you know things are a product of our times or these like they're like these like prevailing like cultural like currents because i think like at its heart like good art good writing good books like they just tell the truth you know and like if you can depict that accurately then your work endures and like i feel like that is what another thing that's just so captivating about this book is like there's obviously there's like imperfect like things about it and you know we can talk about the stance of pearl s buck being a white woman writing about china we can talk about that but like at its heart, I feel like it's a book that tries to touch on what's true about how we feel and who we are as like human beings. And I think that that endures and that comes through. And um, I'm sorry that Pearlis Buck didn't get the movie she wanted. I hope she, <laughs> I hope there's like a remake or something. But you know, the fact that like you can take a work like that and make it into like other works that are successful and good just kind of speaks to its sticking power, you know? And I also hope we get a remake of The Good Earth. I think we're due one. There's not a ton of original movies out there, and we keep seeming to cycle back into <laughs> movies that had some success earlier um, in the 1900s. So I'm hoping to see Sofia yeah. Coppola direct oh, the next awesome. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Audrey. Thank you, Simone. I had such a great time. Thanks for listening to our second episode of Book Blab. You can read a full review of The Good Earth on the Daily Campus. Keep an eye out for our next Blab with English major Elizabeth Hamill, where we'll talk about Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice. Thanks again, and see you next time.